This is a talk by Joel titled, Listening to the Stones, talk number two, Impermanence, recorded October 2011 at the Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Castle Rock, Washington. Did everybody bring their guru stone? Okay. So, as we said earlier, it's not just the stone that speaks of God, but everything in the cosmos speaks of God, or speaks of the ultimate reality, we might say. And the question is, why? Why should everything be speaking of the ultimate reality? And of course, here we have to give a slightly anthropomorphic answer, if we're going to answer it at all, because the true answer can't be put into words. But here's what some of the great mystics have said. Here's Ibn Arabi, a great Sufi. The movement that is the coming into existence of the cosmos is a movement of love. This is shown by the Apostle of God in the saying, I was an unknown treasure and longed to be known. So that but for this longing, the cosmos would not have become manifest in itself. So let me explain that a little bit. This saying by the Apostle of God, the Apostle of God is Muhammad, and as the story goes, Muhammad asked Allah, when the people ask me, why did you make this cosmos, what should I tell them? And Allah answered, I was an unknown treasure that longed to be known. In other words, Allah creates the cosmos in order to be known. And it's interesting that this word uh, in Arabic apparently can be translated either as love or longing. Notice that Ibn Arabi says it's a movement of love, and then Allah says, I was a hidden treasure that longed to be known. So love and longing here are intertwined. They are the same root emotion. So, According to the Sufis, the cosmos is a manifestation of love, divine love, a creative kind of love. So Allah longs to be known, longs to be known by whom and how? Well, by us and through us. And ultimately, as the Sufis would say, of course, there's only Allah, so in a certain sense, it's Allah knowing Allah, and we are the instruments of that knowing. We are the means by which this cosmos is revealed. This is what the Quran says. We shall show them our signs. Uh, we, by the way, if, if you don't know from the Quran, is, even though it's a plural, it refers to Allah. We shall show them our signs upon the horizons and in themselves until it is clear to them that he is the real. He, again, is Allah. <laughs> So it's also a manifestation that is a guidance for us so that we will know what is reality. Now listen to uh, Dionysius the Europagite, an early Christian mystic. And here's what he says. The very cause of the universe is the beautiful, good, superabundance of his benign yearning. He is, as it were, beguiled by goodness, by love, 
and by yearning and is enticed away from his transcendental dwelling place and comes to abide within all things. And he does so by virtue of his supernatural and ecstatic capacity to remain nevertheless within himself. Now, notice how similar this is. First of all, the formless God takes on form, if you like, out of what? Love and yearning. The same principle here at work, the same teaching we're hearing. And this is why. This is out of compassion for us to lead us to the divine. Here's how another Christian mystic, Bonaventure, describes it. All the creatures of the sense world lead the mind of the contemplative and wise man to the eternal God. For these creatures are shadows, echoes, and pictures of that first, most powerful, most wise, and most perfect principle, of that eternal source, light, and fullness, of that efficient, exemplary, and ordering art. So this world is an image of the divine. The form is, in a sense, the image of the formless. It's the manifestation of the source. And notice this word art in here. This whole cosmos is like a work of art. It's a creative work of art. For the same reason. Why does an artist create art? Because in the artist is a hidden treasure that longs to be known. And if you've ever done any creativity yourself, you know what that feels like. There's a poem in you longing to be born. There's a picture in you longing to be born. There's a song in you longing to be born. And you don't know what it is until it's born. So that's how you know what the hidden treasure is. You don't know the hidden treasure until it's born. Well, this a perfect metaphor, a perfect analogy that these mystics are using for the whole cosmos. In Hinduism, the ultimate reality is called Atman or Brahman. Atman is the true self, which is the ultimate reality. And it's described as Sat-Chit-Ananda, being consciousness bliss. So consciousness is the ground reality, and consciousness gives being to beings, and it's all an expression of Bliss, the inherent bliss in the ground reality. This is why the Upanishads, the great ancient Hindu texts say, Brahman is bliss, for from bliss all beings have come, and by bliss they all live, and unto bliss they all return. So again, it's this expression of this uh, creative bliss, uh, a creative love, it's the same uh, principle here. The same bliss that an artist experiences in creativity. The same love. So forms of the cosmos are the play of the divine. Lila is the Sanskrit word. And that's a very common uh, image in Hindu mysticism. That all this cosmos is the lila, the play of God. Here's how Anandamoya Mai describes it. Discover him in any particular form and you will finally come to see that all forms are expressions of the one. So, 
we're sitting here and we're wondering where's God, what's God, what's reality, and everything is an expression of that. And all we have to do is recognize it in one form. I look over at Fred, oh my God, there's God. <laughs> and then I look around and I see it everywhere. The meaning behind all this is to be guidance, to try to show us something. The Tibetans look at the cosmos as a teaching mandala. A mandala, according to Longchenpa, is an integrated structure organized around a unifying center which possesses five excellencies. So it's often depicted graphically as a a circle or sometimes a square and within it there will be gods, the god realms or whatever. The five excellencies here are the teacher, the teaching or the message, the audience, the place, and the time. So the idea is for a teaching to happen you need these five excellencies. You need a teacher and then you need the teacher to be giving a teaching and then you need somebody to hear the teaching and then you need a place for this to happen and you need a time for it all to happen. So if we have all those things together we have the mandala. So right now we're all sitting in a mandala. I'm the teacher, I'm giving you these verbal teachings, you're the audience, you're hearing the teachings, this is the place, Cloud Mountain, and this is the time. It's about, what, uh, 9.51 on Sunday. But even if I weren't here, me, as the formal teacher, giving these verbal teachings, it would still be a mandala. Because the cosmos is always giving you teachings. Here's what Longchenpa says, and now he's speaking from the point of view of gnosis, of enlightenment. I, the creativity of the universe, arise as the teacher in the five forms of pure and total presence, earth, water, wind, fire, and space. Their dimension is the full richness of being. Their message is conveyed through their form. The teacher teaches its own nature. The five forms of the state of pure and total presence show everything to be the truth itself. Oh, let's go through that again. So, I, the creativity of the universe. So, this is the creative ground of everything. Arise as the teacher in the five forms of pure and total presence. And those five forms are earth, water, wind, fire, and space. Five fundamental forms make up the whole cosmos. So, he says, I arise as the teacher in the five forms of pure and total presence. These are forms of pure and total presence. Pure and total presence is pristine awareness, primordial awareness, the ground consciousness. Their dimension is the full richness of being. This is it. I mean, you know, it's like the primary colors that make up all the colors of an artist's palette. Their message is conveyed through their form. 
The teacher teaches its own nature. What is the teacher teaching? Reality, just reality. The five forms of the state of pure and total presence show everything to be the truth itself. Wherever you look, everything is showing the truth. It's all displaying the truth. I love this because God has so much patience. See, we go here. Stone. You don't get it? Okay. Here's a clock. You don't get it? Here's paper. Huh? You still, I mean, it's never ending, the teaching, until you get it. I've never met a teacher with so much patience, including myself, believe me. And why, again, uh, is this happening according to the Tibetans? Here's Longchenpa. The universal ground's essence is voidness. Its nature is clarity. Its manifestive power is all-pervading compassion. So the creative power of the cosmos is compassion. It is manifesting out of compassion to lead us to that truth that everything is manifesting. And this compassion is innate in that ground consciousness. Longchampa goes on. Compassion does not arise, does not cease, and is selfless. Therefore, being for others is always present. It need not come about. And you know, we do a lot of practices about cultivating compassion and so forth, and in a relative level, they're very important to do, extremely important to do, in fact. What we're really doing, however, is not creating compassion, not uh, manufacturing something that wasn't there. What we're really doing is removing obstacles so that that innate compassion can shine through, can manifest. Because it's already there. And in the beginning, it often feels like hard work. Going out and really doing a practice of compassion, a practice of trying to love your neighbor, a practice of trying to love your enemy, it is difficult. No question about it. But what we learn, and this is true of the whole spiritual path, what we learn is actually that all this struggle and difficulty, this is simply because we have all these obstacles. And as they fall away, it gets easier, it gets spontaneous. It becomes natural. It's no big deal. So let's point out that these teachings, and notice that this is a universal teaching among mystics. It's one of those teachings with tremendous intersubjective agreement, stated many times with almost the same words. It's completely different from a secular materialist view of the world. It's very important to recognize that from the get-go. The secular materialist view of the world is it's meaningless. Aside from maybe some piddly meaning that we read into it, you know, we have to struggle to find some meaning in our life through our career or whatever. But no, no, this view of the world is the world is saturated with meaning. It's a creative work of art that's begging you to understand it. So, why don't we see this all the time, if this is the case? I mean, it's always the case. And that is because of the five excellencies. The teacher is here. The teaching is going on. The time is now. The place is right here. But the audience doesn't show up. The audience is off shopping in the great shopping mall of samsara. (laughs) So all we have to do is leave the shopping mall of samsara 
and show up for the teaching. And we can do that anytime, any place. Yes, it's uh, helpful to have a place like Cloud Mountain here to come to, where we can minimize our distractions and so forth. But truly speaking, wherever you find yourself, you are in that mandala. And if you show up as the audience, it will be a mandala. If you don't show up as the audience, we're missing one of the excellencies. So, how can this help us? Well, we can use this idea that the cosmos is a teaching mandala to reorientate ourselves to our own experience. So, let's try a meditation a guided meditation, I'll guide you through this, and see if we can enter this mandala, become conscious and aware that this is a mandala. So, first thing, before you get into uh, your posture, I want you to put your guru stone out there on the floor in front of you, where you can see it comfortably. For this one, you're not going to have to pick it up or touch it or anything, so just get it out there where it's easy in your field of vision. Okay. So, here we go. So we begin by stabilizing attention through concentration. Let your attention expand to include the field of bodily sensations.
let attention expand to include the sound field. attention expand to include any tastes or smells that may be present. attention expand to include not just the sight of your stone, but the entire visual field and all the visual phenomena that arise within it. attention to expand to include the mental field and become aware of any thoughts, images, memories that arise. attention to expand into the total field of consciousness awareness. Become aware of all the phenomena in all the fields that arise and pass away.
Now notice that the five excellencies of the mandala are manifesting. The time is the present moment. The place is right here. The audience is you. The stone and everything else in the environment is the teacher. But what is the message? So what is the message? If we tell you what we think the message is, we get whacked with the stick. <laughs> How long have you been coming here? <laughs> yes. I'm not sure if it was my mind creating some answers uh. or whether I was actually hearing something. But I heard three things. First was just stillness. And then I'm not what I seem. And then we are one. We are not different. Well, I would say first message, best message. Stillness. There's something about stillness here. I mean, we've tried this before. We want the stone to speak God like we speak with our mouths and it doesn't do it. If it does do it, by the way, come see me for a private counselor. Uh, but it doesn't. So, maybe there's some message in the fact that it's not speaking in the stillness. Maybe. But that's not the message. I would say that's a clue. And what was the, the second one? I'm not what I see. Ah, very good. Now see, I would say that's your mind, but that's okay. Now your mind is, again, giving you a clue. It's not trying to give you an answer. The third one, however, your mind is now getting impatient and it's giving you an answer. 
We are one. Okay, yes, very good. Everybody can say that. Yeah, we and the star are one. That's the one. Yes, that's the one. But it's interesting how that works. First, uh, I think it's Sansanim, a Korean Zen master, who has a slogan, first thought, best thought. So uh, here, the first one, stillness. Okay, wow, that's pretty immediate. That's like tangible. That's getting close, right? And then I am not what I seem. Well, that's a little bit of a commentary, but it's a good commentary. It's a negative commentary. It's trying to pull the rug out from under you a little bit, saying, you know, whatever you think, that ain't it. But then you see the poor mind. (laughs) There's this vacuum, this void. Nobody's speaking, so it's, well, I'll speak up. I've read this. We are one. Yeah, right. And this is why we practice allowing those kinds of thoughts just to self-liberate. And no big deal, you know, no shame, no blame. That's just what the mind does. Okay? Yeah. Because the question, what's the message, the same as the Buddhist question, to which the student responded by picking the flower. <laughs> oh boy, the mind is really going to town on that one. <laughs> Why didn't you just run out and pick a flower? <laughs> well, you've earned three whacks for that one. <laughs> Yes, Tom. My son started teaching me last night about 10 seconds after I picked it up. And I was I had three stones picked out. And I was looking at it kind of like from a geologist's point of view. Which one is the most interesting? And so I was like, which one do I want? I was making all these comparisons. You know, is this the right one? Is this the right one? Yeah. And then I, I finally chose this one. It was, it was a tough choice, but... I chose it because it's part of the Nashville Teff and it's got rubies in it. It's got what? Rubies. Mm-hmm. The little microscopic rubies in it. If you look at it really, if you were to look at it under a hand lens, yes. you would see rubies. Oh. And the rubies formed as part of the part of the volcanic eruption. They were part of the part of the right. lava and the extrusion right. that, that created it. So I started looking at all these stories about you know this is the really the materialist. This is the whole story. I thought, wow, these atoms go clear back to the beginning of the universe and the Big Bang. Some of these atoms came out of stars that existed before our sun and the solar system. And there's enough energy in here to blow up Manhattan. And, you know. <laughs> 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 so this all went on last night. And, and I brought it in this morning and I looked at it. And when I was doing the exercise, you know, what came, the thought that came to me was, is there anything I could actually say about this stone that's true? Well, this is excellent because this is exactly uh, what a Zen interview is about. You get a koan and you're asked to give an answer and the student, you know, thinks up all these answers and the teacher rejects them all and finally the student's left in silence. Doesn't know what to say. That's the first step. That's not the end. But that's the first step. That's a good place to be. So you went through this whole process with the stone. You don't need to fly to Japan and go sit in a Kyoto monastery or something. Just go out there and pick up a stone. No, really, I'm serious. If you show up as the student and you come to learn from the stone, the stone will begin to teach you. 
It's the beginning of a teaching. It'll make you run through all your trips, you think you know about stones, and then you realize I don't know anything about stones. Now the trick is to stay with it. This is where commitment comes in, see? The attention part, it got your attention, and, and da-da-da, your mind started cooking up all this stuff. Well, that didn't work, but now you have the commitment to stay with it. Even though you don't know what to say. Do you have the commitment to come sit at the feet of your guru? Very good. Yes, Haram. I picked this one specifically because it I it's stand out and it shapes heart. Uh-huh. Um, heart shape. Heart shape. But when I was looking at it, said it it doesn't it's not a <coughs> heart. It's not a what? It's not what this from this angle, it's just not a <laughs> This is a wonderful lesson in finding teachers. You have an idea of what the teacher should look like. should be heart-shaped or whatever, and you come. And here's one that matches it. Oh, my gosh, in your first angle, there you are sitting in the temple with the incense, and da-da-da, and, oh, I found my teacher. And then you hang out with your teacher for a while, and you realize from different angles, no, the teacher isn't quite like that, what you thought. But, same thing, like, the guy with the poncho is my teacher. <laughs> <laughs> this is interesting, though, because look, if people are going through the stone, what people go through with a teacher. I mean, the same thing happens, doesn't it? My son tried to, like, God is love. But from what you were saying, I had a little different take on it because about compassion and the whole world and the mind and all that. So it seemed to fit. What, wait a minute, what did, not what I said, but what did the stone say? God is love. God is love. That's what the stone said? Uh-huh. In English? <laughs> <laughs> Your stone speaks English? No. Hiromi speaks Japanese. <laughs> Be careful of the mind's interpretation of the teaching. We don't want to hear the filtered through the mind. We want the direct teaching. So we have to be careful not to have the stones just reflect back to us what we already know. The stones and everything else is trying to show us something we don't know. Okay. The first lesson the cosmos is teaching us is impermanence. And it's an extremely important lesson because it's through recognizing the impermanence of all the phenomena that appears in the cosmos, that we begin to be weaned from our attachments to our dramas and our worldly pursuits and so forth. It's not that we stop doing them unless we want to become a monk or a nun, but we see that in perspective, that it is a temporary game we're playing and there's no ultimate prize to get. Here's the great Kabbalist Abraham Abulafia, and he writes, All is imagination and mockery, like a dream which passes by in the night, which when the sleeper awakes from it, thus shall he find it. Think about your life. Isn't this really true? I mean, this isn't just some 
obscure Kabbalist teaching. This is a direct reflection of our experience. Think back to the, the highlights of your youth. You know, the first car you had. Where is it now? Has anybody still got their first car? Uh, no. How about the first love of your life? Anybody still got the first love of your life? No, not even that. <laughs> anyway, really, you know, if you just look at your life, where is it now? Where is yesterday? Where's two days ago? Two days ago, you know, you were driving up here. There, there was a road, there were signs. But where is it all now? It's gone, just like he says. It's like a dream which passes by in the night. So this is just the truth. And this is, for most traditions, the entrance into the tradition. You'll find this teaching of impermanence usually right there, tacked up to the entry gate. Impermanence. If you don't want to hear about impermanence, don't enter here. Because that's the first thing you're going to find out about. Here's um, the Christian mystic, Simone Weil. And here's what she says. We all know that everything that appears to be good in this world is finite, limited, and wears out. Every human being has probably had some lucid moments in his life when he has definitely acknowledged to himself that there is no final good here below. But as soon as we have seen this truth, we cover it up with lies. Men feel that there is a mortal danger in facing this truth for any length of time. That is true. Such knowledge strikes more surely than a sword. It inflicts a death more frightening than that of the body. After a time, it kills everything within us that constitutes our ego. In order to bear it, we have to love truth more than life itself. So actually, it's not only a beginning teaching, it's a teaching that goes on and on and on and deepens and deepens and deepens on a spiritual path because most of us aren't really ready to face the total implications of this. That everything dies, wears out, vanishes, breaks down. Everything. You know, in ancient times, they used to think that the the stars, the celestial bodies were immortal, that they were eternal. Well, now we know even the stars don't last. They blow up in supernovas and stuff like that. So everything, everything, everywhere, you can't find anything that is permanent here. So this is a very powerful teaching if it can penetrate, as she says, the lies we tell each other and ourselves about what's going on. And the lie is not really so much that I am permanent, but what we do is in our minds we put the end off. Oh, well, someday. I don't have to think about that now. I don't have to face it now. I don't have to face reality now. I'm focused on getting that new iPod. That's what's really important. And these iPods, you know, they last a good long time. I mean, they don't become obsolete for at least two or three years so I can have my iPod. That's about as far in the future that we look these days. So this is a very, very powerful teaching. It's not just a beginning teaching that we say, oh, there's impermanence, and then we go on. No, no. 
It's a teaching that deepens and deepens because ultimately, as Simone indicates, it's what pulls the rug out from under our story of I. It makes the whole story futile, really, when we think about it. And it's particularly important teaching when we are in the grip of some greed, when there's something we just have to have. And if we recognize the impermanence of everything, in the beginning, it just takes the edge off that. And then it begins to give us some space around it. If you can see it in the context of everything's in permanence and you can't always get what you want and whatever you do get is going to dissolve out from under you, then this whole grasping and, and trying to hang on to things, that whole activity lessens somewhat. It becomes lighter. We have a lighter touch going through life. I'm sorry, that's okay. I don't. Did you just say the last sentence? The very last sentence? I'm winging it, kid. <laughs> I don't have this written in the script. He said you can't always get what you want. You can't get no satisfaction. We should have brought Mick Jagger's uh, piece of that. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Your guru rocks. <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is that the things that we are fixated on so much that we think we really have to have to be happy, first of all, we can't always get them, and even when we do get them, we can't keep them. So the reality doesn't match the intensity with which we try to grasp things. Is that making sense? Okay. But it's not only that everything is impermanent in a general way, and it's not only that even the stars, which seem so eternal, are impermanent. It's that everything in our experience, moment to moment, is impermanent. Our experience is constituted of phenomena arising and vanishing, arising and vanishing. This like this dance that even in, uh, within the span of a minute we can't grab onto anything. So when the mystics talk about impermanence, yes, they talk about the permanence of everything in the world, where the trees grow and die and mountains corrode, but it's not just that, it's our moment-to-moment -moment experience. So, the problem is, of course, we don't notice this impermanence because we are constantly distracted by our thoughts, which themselves are impermanent, but our thoughts form into these long stories that seem to go on and on and on and on. So the way to discover this moment-to-moment -moment impermanence is, of course, always to free our attention from our thoughts and direct it to our actual experience. So, let's look at our guru and see what our guru can tell us about this. Yeah, you need to actually pick your rock up here, so maybe you could get Ellie's rock for her. Now, it's interesting because we think of rocks as a symbol of things that are solid. In fact, we have a saying, solid as a rock. We're going to see how solid rocks are here in a minute. Okay. <laughs> 
Now, just put it in your lap, which so you're not holding it, and look at it. And what you see is a phenomena appearing in the visual field, as we know from doing our spacious awareness practice, don't we? We've actually already prepared to study this, you see, through our meditative practice. Now, if you close your eyes, that phenomena disappears from the visual field. It didn't last. It's gone. Now, if you open your eyes, there's visual phenomena again. Now, interesting, we tend to think of it, oh, it came back, the same visual phenomena. But did it? Let's pick up our rock now and tap it. Okay? Each one of those sounds that the rock makes that is part of what we consider a rock is impermanent, isn't it? It vanishes. I mean, how long does the tap last? Half a second? Probably have to measure in nanoseconds or something. Now, tap your rock once and clearly listen to that. Pause and then tap it again. So let's tap it once. Okay, let's tap it again. Was the first sound the same as the second sound? Okay, now put your rock down on your knee or lap someplace. Now look at it. Now close your eyes. Now that was visual phenomena one. Now open your eyes. There's visual phenomena two. Are they the same? Supposing we look now, we see visual phenomenon one, we close our eyes, and we don't open our eyes until it's after dark. Would it be the same visual phenomenon? No. So it fools us. We think it's the same visual phenomenon, but it's not the same visual phenomenon. It's a different visual phenomenon. Each visual phenomenon is impermanent. Each tap is impermanent. Now, just handle your rocks so you get the sensations in your fingers. Feel all those sensations? First of all, notice that there are uh, numerous sensations, not just one sensation. Even if you just let the rock sit in your hand. So it's little teeny, teeny, weeny sensations. Now, Put the rock back down. All those sensations are gone, aren't they? They're all impermanent. Let's take a smell. I don't know if your rock has a, an aroma. Mine doesn't very much. Oh, a little bit. Can anybody smell the rock? Okay, then hold your rock away from your nose. That was impermanent, wasn't it? It's gone. Do we dare? I taste. I hope you cleaned your rock well. <laughs> if it's not gone now, it'll, it'll be gone in a few minutes. 
Those last a little longer. Probably taste last longer than anything else, actually. But it's impermanent. So the sight, the sound, the taste, the smell, the feel of the rock, they're all impermanent. Even the idea of the rock is impermanent. The thought. I think, oh, there's my rock. We're thinking about rocks, but you know what? (laughs) You put the rock away, you're not going to be thinking about rocks when you're walking down there and you hear the dinner bell ring. You're going to be thinking about dinner. It's going to be impermanent. The thought of the rock isn't going to stay with you. So what else is there that makes up rock? We've got the visual phenomenon, we've got the sound phenomenon, we've got the sensations, we've got the taste, the smells, and the thoughts. There ain't nothing else. Our actual experience of rock is an experience of many, many different impermanent phenomena. That's what our experience of rock is when we look into it in detail. All our experience, moment to moment, is impermanent. There's nothing to grasp onto here. There's nothing to hang on to. So, the cosmos, of course, is always teaching us this lesson of impermanence. We just don't pay attention. But if we do start to pay attention, then we can start to learn this lesson in our bones. And the greatest season for learning this lesson is autumn. Because autumn is an accelerated period of deterioration. It becomes more obvious how impermanent everything is. Let me read you from Longchenpa, great Tibetan master. In the forest, by the example of dead leaves, come to realize that the body, youth, and senses change gradually and do not possess any true essence. By the example of empty lotus ponds, come to realize that various objects of desire, wealth, and prosperity are finally going to change that there is no true essence in them. By the example of the change of days, months, and four seasons, come to realize that the blossoming spring flower-like body is subject to change as time passes, its youth fades away, and the arrival of the Lord of Death is certain. By the example of the fall of ripened fruit, come to realize that all, young, adult, and old, are subject to die. By the example of the rising of reflections in ponds, come to realize that the various phenomena appear but have no true existence. They are like illusions, a mirage, and a water moon, and are certain to be empty of true existence. So, he's actually recommending a practice. And we are fortunate enough to be here at just this time of year, so we are going to take advantage of it. And the rest of the afternoon, we're going to do a little formal practice here, one round of formal practice, but the rest of the afternoon, we're going to go out there and wander through this decaying forest. And we're going to do exactly what Long Chempa advised us to do. We're going to follow his teachings. We're going to watch how the leaves fall, and we're going to go look at the ponds and see the reflections and see if we can't learn from the forest 
the teaching of impermanence. Steep ourselves in it. Okay. So, as I said, we'll do one round of formal meditation here. And it's entering spacious awareness through choiceless awareness, going through the various sense fields, and then resting in spacious awareness. The same thing we've been doing now since yesterday afternoon, except that now we are going to pay particular attention to the impermanence of all the phenomena arising in the various fields. So we're going to notice sensations arising, we're going to notice sounds arising and passing away, we're going to notice if they're tastes or smells, we're going to notice sights, we're going to notice thoughts, but we're also going to notice how they arise and how they pass away. And we're going to try to pick out the most prominent phenomena that present themselves and see in detail. Ooh, ooh. Rose came, passed away. Maybe it's a sensation, a little itch in my shoulder, okay? Itch, 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 itch. Rose passed away. Salvation, stay with every phenomenon until it's self-liberated? You should, unless it's some phenomena that, well, if you have some phenomena like a pain in the knee that's lasting, you know, for a minute, (laughs) no, look into it because what you'll discover is the pain itself is made up of like little pulses, each of which arise and pass away. So you're not forcing yourself to stay on some phenomenon. You're just watching closely. And if some phenomena seems to be hanging around, just watch more closely and you'll see that it changes. Even phenomena in the visual field sitting here completely still still change. Now, if you're not used to this, if you don't have as refined attention, what you can do then when you get to the visual field is you can blink You can shift your gaze slightly to the right and slightly to the left and you'll see dramatic change. If you shift all the way to the left, everything here goes away. To the right, it's totally different. Everything here goes away. So you can play with the visual field a little bit. When you get up to walk and you walk around the forest, pay particular attention to the visual field. Things are coming and going like crazy. So... We're entering spacious awareness and it's exactly the same except that we want to become aware of this moment-to-moment impermanence of all this phenomena. And then when we are finished with one round, we will quietly get up and go our way in the world and we'll spend the rest of the afternoon in solo meditation. And I advise you to split it up between formal and informal. In other words... Go for walks through the woods, maybe come to a bench, sit down, do a little formal meditation, but you're meditating on, always on impermanence. Impermanence, impermanence, impermanence. Okay? Then, here we go.
You've now reached the end of this talk. Continue practicing at least once a day until you are thoroughly familiar with these instructions. Then continue with the next talk for more teachings and instructions.